Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good. Uh, thanks for having me on, Chris. Uh, no, no problem. In fact, you're about the perfect person to have on because as we really get into the thick of all of this CBA stuff, um, I'm sure you fight this battle because you're coming from the labor perspective, being a union attorney and knowing a lot about baseball, a lot about this situation, uh, you probably have to combat with the folks who, who want to both sides this thing. And I have a very difficult time both sidesing it because I do feel like this is more of a, a players are trying to regain some ground um, because they've lost a lot in the last several CBAs. So tell me why I'm right or wrong about that. So like you said, I, I'm a union lawyer. So, you know, obviously I favor employees uh, in collective bargaining uh, with their uh, bosses. Uh, but, you know, from, from this specific perspective, um, you have to look at the big picture. And the big picture is uh, both parties are making pretty interesting and novel proposals. Um, the fact is that the reporting, however, is that the players are the only ones seeking change. Well, everything's working. Why are the players asking for more? Why are the players asking for more? Well, that's not exactly true. Management is asking for more, too. Management's asking for uh, increased playoffs, and increased playoffs means increased revenue. Uh, Maury Brown at Forbes has uh, reported that starting in, in this season, should it happen, uh, the teams will be splitting $58 million, in, uh, $58 million each in revenue from television. Uh, that's a 30% increase from the last series of uh, negotiated TV contracts. Um, and so as that revenue is going up, uh, management is also trying to restrict salary growth. Uh, salaries have actually gone down uh, since about 2016 across baseball. Uh, now, you don't see that at the top of the scale. Mike Trout obviously set a record. You've got other huge contracts like Lindor. You've got Scherzer getting a big contract this offseason. Uh, but overall, salaries are going down. The average salary is going down. Um, and for those 40% uh, of players who uh, make the major league minimum, their salaries have not kept up with inflation. Uh, so those are all aspects of this. Uh, but then additionally, management is asking for the uh, competitive balance tax, which used to be called the luxury tax, to be uh, reinstated. It 
uh, expired at the end of uh, the last regular season. Uh, it's sunset in the collective bargaining agreement. So even if the parties were to negotiate uh, through the season with no CBA uh, in effect other than the last CBA, because that's what the law provides, the competitive balance tax would not exist. So management is really driving to create these two new revenue streams. One, well, one's a revenue stream, uh, and the other is a restriction on salaries. Um, and, you know, baseball doesn't have a salary cap, a hard cap, and it doesn't have a floor. Uh, but you have to look at this really to say, is the media giving you a fair estimation of what's going on? And when they're presenting it as both sides are at fault for the lockout, that's not true because the lockout is a management tactic that is 100% in management's control. Uh, they can end the lockout today. They could have ended it yesterday. They didn't have to start it at all. Um, so if, if the lockout is what cancels games, that's completely on management. And if the media presents it as the players are looking for change, that's not true. Everybody's looking for change. And they have to go through that process and negotiate over everything. Right now, management says, we're not going to negotiate over everything. We're only going to negotiate over what we want to. Whereas the players are putting everything on the table. All of their proposals have been comprehensive. They've included expanded playoffs. They've included reinstating the competitive balance tax. It's, it's a very um, even-keeled perspective, I would say, on behalf of the, of the union, whereas management is only saying, we want to do what we want to do, and we don't care what you want. Labor attorney Eugene Friedman joining us here on The Score, and I, I, I realize that, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking at it again from a different perspective because I, like I said earlier, I do think players have conceded quite a bit over the years, even though it doesn't look that way. And it's a very difficult battle with the general public to get them to see it that way. Is there any possible way to fight that? Because I, I have seen you criticize the reporting, and you mentioned it just now, that there, there is a lot of both sides in here. And, you know, owners are now trying to blame Scott Boris and saying that you have, uh, Tony Clark and, and Bruce Meyer, who's the union attorney, they don't have the ability to get everybody in line, and really Boris is running the show, and the media is sort of running with that. So how do you combat that if you're the players? Well, I think one of the ways is that, and a lot of the players have been doing this, going directly to their fans. Uh, this is the first CBA negotiations, at least the first one that's contentious, uh, in which the social media platforms exist. And so a lot of players are going to Instagram, going to Twitter, and posting about uh, the union's positions, posting about why they believe uh, the minimum salary should be increased. Uh, posting about why arbitration should be available earlier, um, and posting about tanking. I mean, tanking is a fan's issue. Um, I'm an Orioles fan, and the last three years have been brutally bad. They, they've been uh, the worst years of my fandom. Um, when a team basically says, we're not trying to compete, we're actually competing for the number one draft pick every year, um, and they trade away all of their uh, major league uh, star quality players and then don't sign any to replace them, um, it, it's really hard to be a fan. 
and the Players Association is actually the ones trying to change the dynamic in terms of tanking. Uh, you'll hear a lot of rhetoric from management about, uh, you know, making sure that the game is competitive. Uh, but management is the one actually allowing these things to occur, and they don't seem to put in place any guide rails or remedies for teams that just don't want to try. When teams say, and they do this a lot, well, Manfred does it a lot, and you'll see some individual teams claim that they just can't stay competitive with the big markets, even with all of the revenue sharing, the, the television contracts, all of these things, they, you have a lot of teams that are still claiming they can't you know, compete with the big boys. How close is that to being truth? So I think that for certain teams, the Dodgers, the Cubs, the Yankees, the Mets, uh, they have sufficient revenues to compete regardless of what end of their talent cycle they're in. Um, I think teams in uh, some other markets probably have to do a little more timing. Uh, but in terms, just to give an example of the Pirates, the Pirates are um, almost laughable in terms of their attempts to be competitive, if they're even trying at all. Um, and that's gone on for a long time, uh, decades even. Um, and just the Pirates specifically uh, will be earning that $58 million I mentioned before in shared revenue from television in 2022, should they play the full season. Um, they will also get $50 million in local TV revenues. They'll also get all of the shared streaming revenues. And then they'll get uh, these this um, anything that comes from commissioner-introduced um, funds. And, and the, ver the most recent collective bargaining agreements have, have given the commissioner a, a basically a slush fund uh, to be doled out to smaller revenue or smaller market teams. Um, so they'll be getting $130 million before a single ticket is sold, before any merchandise is sold with the Pirates logo on it or a Pir Pirates player's name on the back. Uh, so you've got $130 million as a baseline. Their salary expenditures last year was $55 million. <laughs> so I know there are other expenses. And I know that, you know, they do pay the salaries of the minor leaguers uh, between ten dollars and $20,000 for five months uh, for, for each of them. Uh, and they have other expenses related to running the franchise, although a lot of these franchises have very few employees. Um, they're really mom and pop small businesses from that perspective. Um, they, they are, that differential between 130 and 55 is pretty huge of a profit margin when you're considering that doesn't include ticket sales that doesn't include concessions it doesn't include merchandise it doesn't include any real estate based value such as if they own their own or lease their own parking at the ballpark all of those things uh, are additional profit uh, for the team so the pirates are making a lot of money they can't claim poor now, I understand that some years they're not going to spend as much money because they're in a rebuilding cycle. Um, but when they're in, theoretically, a championship cycle, they should be spending like the Brewers. And the Pirates haven't done that in a really, really long time. And I don't anticipate that they will in the near term or even the long term future. So their owner is just 
using the pirates as a checkbook, and he's really earning money off of the competitive teams in the league because the pirates aren't even trying to win. Union attorney Eugene Freeman Friedman is joining us here on the score, and you brought up real estate, and I want to know if I have this right because there are more and more ballparks and teams around the country who not just own their own parking, but they also own complexes that they've built that include bars and restaurants and, you know, entertainment. And they're, they're, they're either attached to the stadiums or directly across to the stadiums. And, you know, people go there and spend money before and after games and those bring in a lot of money. But those don't count toward the revenue the team makes, right? And and if I have this correct, in addition to that, the team will 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 say that that's part of their debt. So if they're, uh, you know, they say the revenue they're they're getting, they're just breaking even. Well, isn't part of them breaking even that they are investing in these properties? Yeah, I think a lot of the teams uh, have those those properties that you talked about. Um, I know that the Cubs specifically have been buying up property around Wrigley Field uh, in recent years, and so they're they're going to earn rent revenue. Uh, they're a lot of ball clubs are are acting like REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts. Um, they also have these arrangements with um, casinos now to put in uh, gambling either in or adjacent to the ballpark. Um, all of those are increased revenue now. The flip side of that is a lot of these teams are uh, very leveraged financially. Uh, they borrow a lot of money to make those real estate investments. Uh, and, you know, over the long term, uh, and, uh, they're going to make a profit. And over the long term, or, or even the short term, they're going to have uh, significant increases in value for the club. Uh, and that's in, in, in the actual value of the stock of the club. Some of them are very closely held, only a couple are uh, public companies. So, you know, those owners are making money uh, just in the value of the club when they buy uh, these properties. And yes, the leverage uh, that they have, the debt that they have acquired uh, to purchase all this real estate that's where the the lockout could actually come back to bite them because they will have to service that debt. They will have to pay the note on their mortgages uh, during the lockout when revenue is not coming in. Now, like I said, that TV revenue is very back-ended. That $58 million per club is going to come mostly in September and then October during the playoffs. That's when they've structured it. So, the timing of this lockout is to put pressure on the players when they start receiving paychecks starting opening day. They won't receive them if they're locked out. Ownership will lose some revenue, but they'll receive most of that revenue, uh, at least the shared revenue, late in the season and in the playoffs. And that's why it's, they don't care as much locking out now. Uh, the commissioner talked about controlling the timing of a work stoppage. That's exactly what he's been talking about. So beyond what you're talking about or um, the leverage players would have in in having a strike, which I guess, I don't know, can you have a strike if there's a lockout already? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I guess if the players just said, we're, we're not going to negotiate and you're not having a season and you'll deal with not making money this year, um, I feel like that's the only leverage they might have or the fear of what you're talking about. It, 
It, are those the only things that could get owners to come back toward the players? So, you know, during collective bargaining, there are a lot of levers of power that the parties use. Um, one of them is obviously public opinion, and we'll see how well that's shaped. Um, you know, we've talked about that a bit in terms of, of how the media portrays the players and various statements uh, of millionaires versus billionaires, which is, is really a falsehood. Oh, man, I hate that um, one so much. <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing it. Yeah, it, 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 it's just not true, especially because 40% of the players do make uh, the league minimum or even less because they're in AAA on a major league 40-man roster where they're making somewhere between about fifty dollars and $90,000. Um, so be that as it may, uh, <laughs> and trying to get back to your question, um, you know, the, those levers of power, the, the players do have more power later in the season when that revenue from the playoffs comes. Um, and, you know, I don't know whether the players would strike. Uh, it, it makes no benefit for them to strike now. Um, they're already locked out. They can't go to work uh, to say, you can't fire me, I'm quitting, uh, it is basically what calling a strike now would be. I think if they if they wanted to strike, they would have to engage in a lot of uh, member education in advance of it, uh, explaining to their members exactly what the issues are on the table, setting a, a goal. Uh, you can't go on strike without a goal, a, a very specific goal uh, that you can then justify ending the strike for because you've achieved that goal. Otherwise, you reach an agreement, you come back, you have to ratify that agreement and or uh, you you, uh, you don't achieve the goal that you, you laid out or didn't lay one out. And the members say, why are we wasting our time? Um, you know, and they lose faith in leadership. So I think a lot of it is uh, member education, getting on the same page and then setting that goal that is a tangible, achievable goal. Um, the last time the players struck, which was in 1994, uh, it was to an extent a defensive strike. Uh, management had um, basically ended negotiations, declared impasse, uh, and said it was unilaterally imposing a salary cap. Uh, the players uh, went on strike to prevent that unilateral imposition. Um, ultimately, uh, they filed an unfair labor practice. Uh, with the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, I don't want to get too much in the legal weeds here, but uh, when the regional director and general counsel of the NLRB believed uh, that the, the owners had uh, bargained in bad faith, uh, they went to court uh, as the government to seek uh, an injunction against Major League Baseball. Um, and the injunction uh, was issued uh, by uh, now Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, who was at the time a uh, district court judge in New York. Uh, and she said management has bargained in bad faith. Uh, it has illegally unilaterally implemented uh, its last best offer. Uh, and therefore, I am enjoining them from uh, imposing that offer. Uh, it has to withdraw it and restore the status quo ante. Um, and in so doing, um, it basically said management cannot use replacement players. Uh, management has to restore the status quo, which means their last existing CBA. Um, and so the players went back. And for almost two years, 
they played under that expired CBA. Um, and when they were uh, playing under it, uh, the party still had the duty to bargain in good faith, uh, as they do now in a lockout um, and as they would in a strike. Uh, both parties have a parallel uh, duty under the law to bargain in good faith over wages, hours, and terms and conditions of employment. And almost all of these things that they're negotiating over are wages. Uh, there are things that affect the individual economic rights of the players or their collective economic rights. Uh, but there are things related to hours, um, you know, their travel schedule, um, you know, what time games are, day games after a night game, uh, how many days off they have during the season, all of those things are considered hours. Um, and then terms and conditions of employment, uh, one of the issues that came up today uh, is the joint drug agreement and how it is uh, not in effect because management has suspended the CBA yeah. uh, by locking out the players. Uh, last thing for you, got about a minute here, and you did say earlier, um, I think your exact words were regarding the season, should it happen, and I'm wondering if you have a feel over of whether or not you think the season is going to happen at all, and if so, when it might start. So uh, let me defer on the last part. Uh, but, uh, you know, as a, someone who's negotiated about 10 collective bargaining agreements, um, I'm always optimistic that the parties will reach agreement. I think you have to be if you're a negotiator because you have that duty uh, you have a responsibility to your side to reach agreement um, outside the law. You have people who are relying on you to reach agreement. Um, so I'm always inclined to believe that the parties have a course that they could achieve uh, mutually acceptable terms on their own, voluntary agreement. Now, that said, uh, right now, I don't believe management is serious about reaching agreement. Um, they took 43 days off after they imposed the lockout. Uh, they took a nice Christmas vacation for themselves. Uh, and then they came back and basically didn't propose anything. Um, they hadn't made any movement. And now they're saying that they don't have a proposal for the union. Um, so I think that they're going to have to get more serious. Uh, they're testing the players now. And that test may require some lost time. Uh, lost time for the players, but also lost revenue for the managers, uh, management side, uh, lost lost revenue for the owners. Um, and like I said, the players start losing salary on opening day. I know the union has sent out uh, $5,000 per player uh, to those who uh, requested it uh, already. Uh, and so I expect that the union will be tapping its reserve fund uh, to start paying players a little bit more uh, particularly those at the bottom of the scale who don't have a lot of money saved up. And uh, and they'll test the resolve of those players. Uh, how much do they need a paycheck compared to how much are they willing to stand up for their rights? Eugene, I appreciate your time as always. Thanks for giving us so much time this morning. And uh, we'll talk again soon, and, and hopefully we'll have a resolution with this within the next few weeks. Thanks again for having me on, Chris. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, 
celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t